Emerald Audio. Episode 3, Lady Sings the Blues. It's moving by itself. Did you blow that candle out? No, I didn't do anything. Shit, 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 shit. We have to close it down. I'm out of here. No, you can't leave. If you don't close the board with me, an evil spirit can get in and then we're truly trapped. This is... Uh, uh, Craig, Craig, Craig. Just sit down. Thank you. Eris and Lilith. Thank you for your presence and your message. We are now closing the board and wish to say thank you and goodbye. Holy okay. shit. That should be good enough. And see? Nothing bad is happening. No bad spirits here. Mommy! Mommy! Lissy runs up the stairs towards Charlie's bedroom, her heart pounding, terrified of what she might find. As she runs down the hallway, Paola's door opens and she emerges, eyes wide with fear. Was that Charlie? I'll go. No, I've got this. Oh, please, Lizzie. Let me go in. I know how to calm him down. I'm his mother. You are high. You are fired. No, 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 no. No, Lizzie, please. Listen, please. I- I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sure you are. Pack your stuff and get out. Lizzie! Inside the room, Charlie is shaking under the covers. Lissy looks around, but nothing is amiss. No furniture tumbled over, no clothes where they shouldn't be. She puts her arms around Charlie's body, pulling him close to her chest so his quick breathing aligns with hers. Charlie, what happened? There was a face in the window. A face? Darling, we're on the second floor. No one can get up here. But it was there, and it growled at me. (laughs) I'll go and look, okay? Okay. There's no one there. No ladders, nothing. I think you had a bad dream. I wasn't asleep. Sometimes we don't feel as if we're sleeping, but we are. It was a bad dream. A terrible, scary dream, but it wasn't real. Are... are you sure? Yes, darling. Can... can Paula sleep in here tonight? I don't think that's a good idea. You're a big boy, honey. Go back to sleep. Can Paula tuck me in? I'll tuck you in. How about that? Okay. Just remember, Mama's always here, keeping you safe. Promise? I cross my heart. And hope to die? (laughs) And hope to die. Good night, Mina Oxlinger. Who knows what Charlie saw outside the window that night? Could it have been an evil spirit conjured up by the Ouija board? The only thing we know for certain is there was no way for anyone to get up to Charlie's window, so we write it off as a nightmare and hope it was an anomaly. Back downstairs, Lissy and Craig quelled any lingering fears with more vodka, more pot, 
and the rest of Craig's mushrooms, which were due to kick in at any moment. What the hell did all that mean? S-A-C-R? Sacred? Sacrament? Sacrifice. Sacrifice? Like, as in, to kill something? I didn't expect that, but I don't know, maybe. This is bad shit, Lizzie. You said there wouldn't be any bad shit. Oh, and sacrifices can be anything. Really? Yes. You're sure? Of course. It could be a flower, an ant. My dad. (laughs) Okay. Listen, I'm sorry if that freaked you out, but we got Lilith, for God's sakes. That's amazing. Yeah, until she was replaced by whatever freaking demon that was. Eris. Yeah, Eris, who made the board move on its own and started talking about sacrifices. Whoa. What? The mushrooms are kicking in. Yeah? Are the walls sliding down like vanilla ice cream? (laughs) Oh, shit, they are. Come and sit next to me. (sighs) Let's enjoy this together. Okay. Look at how twinkly and pretty the lights are. It's goddess energy in here. Yeah, definitely. This must be Lilith. She is the goddess, the original woman, and she's looking out for all of us. Yeah, too bad Ares came and ate her. (laughs) (laughs) I like you, Craig. Yeah? Why don't you stay over? You mean... No! We have 12 bedrooms. You take the black room. (laughs) What's so funny? (laughs) I had all the bedrooms painted black. (laughs) So, you take the black room, any black room, and you make yourself at home, okay? Eggs and sausages for breakfast... Sound good? Sounds fucking amazing. As indeed it is, Craig had never felt luckier in his life. He never would have dreamed things in Sleepy Hollow could be so exciting. Never would have dreamed he'd be taken under the wing of a woman who was both sexy and maternal. No one had cooked Craig breakfast since he could remember. Now... Here he is, having fallen into the lap of the gods, certain that his luck has finally changed. As he fell into bed in the early hours, he stared up at the black ceiling, a smile on his face, knowing that nothing in his life would ever be the same. A few hours later, in a deluxe suite in the Hyatt Regency in Houston, Eddie Albright sprawls in an enormous bed, watching daylight begin to seep through a crack in the blackout curtains. Eddie takes enough florazepam to knock out a horse, but somehow last night he couldn't sleep. He's not a warrior, but ever since his visit to 
Villa Hellebore, he has an unsettled feeling he just can't shake. He turns his head to see Nena is awake, an omnipresent smile in her dark brown eyes, even first thing in the morning, even now. They hadn't had sex last night, but he had fallen asleep in her arms, and now he feels guilty about it. Lissy was taking up space in his head again, and if things really had changed, if this time was different, he wanted to give it a go with Lissy. This was his old lady, for God's sake. They had a kid. He wasn't going to throw it all away if she was finally putting the effort in to make it work. Are we back to being friends again? How do you do it? How do you always know what I'm thinking? Because we're family. You don't do a tour like this and spend every night in someone's bed without knowing when things change. (laughs) It's Lissy, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. You're going to try again? Yeah. I'm sorry. Hey, don't do that. Don't apologize. We will always be friends, you know? I love you, Eddie. As a friend. I want you to be happy. And if Lissy is in a place where she's able to make you happy, then that's what I want for you, too. Fuck, you're an amazing woman. Why couldn't I just fall in love with you and live happily ever after? Because you're already in love with Lissy, and this isn't my time. Who knows what will happen in the future, but it's okay, man. It's all good. (sighs) (laughs) Where are you going? Cold shower. Can you ring down an order? (laughs) Coffee, eggs and sausages, HP on the side. I know, I know. Nena was the daughter of Eritrean expatriates who'd left their home amid Great Britain's East African campaign during World War II. The stories Nena was told as a girl of the horrors her parents escaped to give her a better life left Nena with an appreciation for the wonders of the safe, relatively privileged world around her. A love of music was another trait Nena's parents passed on to her, as was a sense of daring, both of which led Nena to sneak into a wide-eyed boy's concert when she was 18. A lithe, striking beauty, even then, she caught the eye of the band's manager, Hugh Ryder Pearson, who, with less than admirable intentions, invited Nena to the green room to meet the band. She then caught the ear of Dave Boland, Eddie Albright, and everyone else in that green room with a rendition of Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now that brought even Jimmy to tears. Dave and Eddie tried to hire her as a backup singer on the spot. Nena declined. She knew her parents wanted her to attend university, but Eddie never forgot the precocious young singer he met that day. And the summer after she finished university, Nena was on tour with the wide-eyed boys. Beyond her beauty, her talent, her wit, what most drew Eddie to Nena was her unflappable sense of self, her confidence, her certainty that everything would be all right. 
It was an energy Eddie needed in his life, an energy upon which he thrived, and certainly not one he'd ever found at home. All right, eggs and sausages, as promised. Do you drink coffee? Mm-hmm, sure. This is really good. Here, take mine. Are you sure? Yeah, go ahead. Has no one fed you for years? I can look after myself. Of course you can. But why should you? You're a child. I'm not a child. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. You're obviously not a child, but a young man. But is there no one cooking for you? That's not the sort of family I come from. Hmm. That wasn't the sort of family I came from, either. Yeah, right. You're married to a rock star with all the money in the world. Your life is perfect. Do you get angry when people look at you and say, there's a fine, handsome young man who has everything going for him. What could possibly be wrong? <laughs> no one's looking at me like that. Hmm. They are. But that isn't the point. No one knows who we really are or what we come from. And that means we can reinvent ourselves over and over, thousands of times. We get to decide who we're going to be and how we're going to live our lives. Not our parents, not our family. That's easy to say if you come from If our life is shit in the beginning, it's up to us to make sure it doesn't stay shit. You, my friend, are in control of your own destiny. Uh-huh. Then what about the Ouija board? How are we in control of our own destiny if it can tell you what's going to happen? That's an excellent question. Let me put it another way. Our destiny may be predetermined, but we are the ones who decide how we're going to get there. That was pretty wild last night. <laughs> Wasn't it amazing? Lilith... And then Eris. But does it usually do that? Move by itself? Darling, there's nothing to be afraid of. They sell these boards in toy shops. Do you think they'd be selling it to children if it was some sort of gateway to evil? So it's just a game? I didn't say that. But we closed it properly. I know we did. So there's nothing to worry about. I should probably be getting home. Who do you live with? My dad. Oh, that's right. You said. What's he like? Um, he's kind of a dick. He mostly leaves me alone. But not always. He can be... He gets... A little rough. With you. Craig, look at me. You have nothing to be ashamed of. My dad was the same way. I'm... I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Stay here. <sighs> okay. I'll be right back. Where are you going? The living room. Why? Because it's where I keep my records. What's this? Billie Holiday. Lady Sings the Blues. When I was a little girl, my dad would get a little rough. I'd lock myself in my room. I'd put this on, and all my troubles would melt away. Isn't this like old people music? 
How dare you? Billy is timeless. And if you want to be any good at that record store in the city, you better start studying the classics. <laughs> okay, okay. I guess I can probably trust your taste in music. You can trust me. Period. Everything's going to be fine. Okay. Hey, look at me. Darling, everything is going to be fine. I, uh... Thanks. Anytime. When Craig got home that afternoon, he was struck by how much more miserable his dad's house looked than when he'd left it the day before. Everything was where it had always been. The leftover scrap metal from his dad's junkyard was still strewn across the front lawn, next to two pristine Harley-Davidsons. The piles of dishes still sat in the sink, weeks old. The empty takeout containers and beer cans maintained their endless watch over the living room furniture. But Craig had just spent the most incredible day in the most incredible house with the most incredible woman he'd ever met in his life. And by contrast, the unbearable world in which he'd grown up felt even danker and dirtier than usual. Where the hell you been? Out. Yeah, I'm sure. The hell is that? Nothing. Don't lie to your old man. What is it? It's nothing. It's not nothing. Now let me see it. <clears throat> Give that back. <laughs> A Billy Holiday record? <laughs> Holy shit, boy. Here I was worried you were turning into some sort of addict. All the while you're turning into some sort of queer. That was a gift. If I want to be any good at selling records, Jesus I need to... Jesus Christ, Craig. Will you give that shit a rest? Selling records? That's really what you're going to do with your life? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm going to move to the city you're gonna and move go to the in... city So you can pay another man to live on his property? Work for another man while he pays you dog shit to run his business for him? I don't care what I get paid. I want to do what I love. <clears throat> That's even more queer than this fucking record. Do what you love? World doesn't give a fuck about what you love. It gives a fuck about money. Power. Maybe in your world. In everyone's world. What do I have to do to get this into that spiky head of yours? Just because you're getting older doesn't make you a man, okay? A man takes control of his life. Of his situation. He doesn't just hand it over to other people. I run that junkyard. It's mine. And it ain't much, but it's mine. I make the money. The people there do what I say. And it pays for this house, which is also mine. Where I also do what I want. And that's what it means to be a real man. <laughs> yeah. To be the king of your very own pile of shit. Oh, fuck. Dad, no. Uh, uh. <clears throat> You're a fucking loser. <clears throat> You're never gonna fucking get it. You'll never be a real man. Dad, please. Especially not listening to shit like this. <laughs> Clean that shit up.
pussy. Lissy Ellery had given many interviews. When they ask about her childhood, the years in Sweden before she moved to London, she'd artfully change the subject and move the conversation onto something else. And not one of the interviewers ever dug deeper, too dazzled by the incredible woman before them. She simply didn't talk about her early life. Not even Eddie knows where she came from and what she endured, growing up an only child in a tiny village outside of Stockholm. Her parents were quiet people. Her father had an especially meek demeanor, something that the other workers at the factory made fun of. But beneath his placid surface was a deep well of anger and resentment. He should never have gotten married. He should have got the hell out. He was owed a life bigger than this. In the village of Sigtuna, there was little to do other than get drunk. When her father drank, his mask dropped, and he surrendered to the waves of rage that only grew larger as the years went by, that became harder and harder to suppress. The first time Lissy knew something was wrong was when she had woken up at night. A noise had woken her, a crash. She crept down the stairs to find her mother cowering in the corner of the kitchen as her father stood over her. A china bowl lay in pieces on the floor. Her mother had her hands around her head, whimpering as her father silently hit her and kicked her. Lissy must have made a noise because he froze, and both of them looked over to see her on the stairs. She had never forgotten the look on his face. He had looked so peaceful. She had run back to bed and pulled the covers over her head. The first time he turned on Lissy, she was five. He had come home from the bar to find Lissy making jam tarts. She had spilled the jam on the kitchen floor. He started shouting, transforming into the person Lissy thought of as the beast. And suddenly she found herself flying through the air, smashing into the wall and crumpling to the floor. She should have cried. She had a sense that crying might have stopped him, but she wouldn't do it. At five years old, she somehow knew that she would never give him the satisfaction of seeing her cry. She would never give anyone the satisfaction of seeing her cry. There were times when her mother, Anna, and Lissy left. Her mother would frantically pack a few of their things and leave to stay with a friend, vowing never to return, that she must protect her child. But her father would always find them. They would be lying in bed thinking they were safe when Lissy would hear the sound of a car approaching, knowing it was their car, knowing it was him. If her mother left to protect Lissy, what did it mean that she always went back? Sometimes there were doors slamming, friends telling him to leave. 
the police were called, neighbours, friends. At some point, inevitably, there would be tears, apologies, promises never to drink again. He hated himself, he sobbed. Anna and Lissy were his everything. If they didn't come home, he would kill himself. Then they would return home to the same situation, the same unpredictability, the same chaos. At school, Lissy was known as a badass, someone you wouldn't fuck with. Once, when she was 11, her best friend, Sophie, was teasing her about a boy in class saying she loved him, that they should get married. Lissy sat at her desk as her classmates laughed, a wave of rage engulfing her. She got up, walked over to Sophie and smacked her off her chair. Sophie hit the floor hard and started crying. Lissy walked off, enjoying the feeling of power, terrified of what that might mean. But her temper, whilst bad, wasn't her father's. It wasn't uncontrollable. It was more that she wouldn't let people think that they could fuck with her, that she gave as good as she got. When she was older, Lissy would lie in bed at night and plan her escape. She didn't want to stay in Sweden where nothing ever happened. She wanted more. She followed the music scene and she wanted to be at concerts, mixing with rock stars, finding out what it's like to live a big life in a big city like London or Los Angeles. The last time her father hit her, she was 14. Her mother just stood there, helpless as usual. Lissy picked herself up off the floor and dumped the dried flowers out of a heavy glass vase. Her father had gone out to the garage. She slipped her shoes off and followed him, moving as lightly as a dancer, and swung the vase up over her head. Then she brought it down on his head with all her strength. You ever lay a finger on me or my mother again? I will kill you. Do you understand me? You disgust me, you contemptible little man. Lissy, what have you done? I'm leaving. Would you like to come with me? He won't lay a finger on you if I am here. But I can't be here anymore. This isn't a life for either of us. And you deserve a life, Mama. Just as much as I do. Lissy and Anna left for London. A month later, Anna went home to Sweden. How did Lissy get by then? Perhaps her mother sent money or she took odd jobs. It didn't hurt that Lissy was becoming very pretty and everyone likes to do favours for pretty people. By the age of 18, Lissy was living in a shared flat in Earl's Court, going to see Herman's Hermits and Cream, rubbing shoulders with crowds of young people in clubs like the Adlib, the Marquis, the Scotch of St. James. She had become a great beauty, but there was more than that, some quality that made everyone want to know her, especially men, including Dave Boland, who was then the lead singer of the Wide-Eyed Boys, and also Eddie Albright, 
but Lissy never talks about any of that. Not to reporters, and certainly not to Craig, in her kitchen at Villa Hellebore, she only pats his arm and sends him on his way. Here's the thing, though. I'm Lindy Jones, an investigative journalist, a good one, and I can't be thrown off by Lissy's charm or her dazzling smiles or self-deprecating jokes. According to the Swedish Daily News, in 1958, a Swedish factory worker named Stefan Ellery died of a massive head injury suffered in his own home. He was drunk at the time. The coroner ruled it an accident. Stefan Ellery had one daughter. This is Jane Green. For the latest episodes of Rainbow Girl, follow the podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash rainbowgirl or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have questions for us about Rainbow Girl or have any comments on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at rainbowgirl at emeraldaudio.net. Again, that's rainbowgirl at emeraldaudio.net. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Emerald Audio Network. Rainbow Girl is a production of Emerald Audio in association with Gemini 13. Based on a story by Jane Green, written by Jane Green and Tommy Lombardi. Produced and directed by Garrett Scott for Real Jetpacks Productions. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Featuring the voices of Quincy Dunbaker, Dan Bittner, Tim Dadabo, Jane Green, Jake Hart, Mitchell Hogue, Ryan Cooperman, Tam Mutu, Sarah Natacheni, Sandra Okuboyejo, Jeremy Carlisle Parker, Deborah Rain, Max Roll, Emily Schaefer, and Harry Smith. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Paul Goodrich. Sound editing by Justin Kilpatrick. Executive producers, Jane Green, Spencer Brown, and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Charles Steinhauer, Scott Waxman, Jacob Bronstein, David Bibby, and Travis Bell. <laughs> <laughs>